the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what the hell is going on? First, what the hell is going on is that you are finally back here in the studio with me, sitting next to me so I can tell you to your face how wrong you are about everything. Thank you. It was so much, it was so much better when you told me over the phone when I could walk back out into the sunshine of Melbourne, Australia. Exactly. But yeah, I'm here. And, and the second thing that's going on is that you left the Asian Hemisphere at exactly the right time because you beat it here before the uh, the Wuhan coronavirus struck. <laughs> now, Mark, in Australia, we prefer to refer to Australia as its own continent okay. and part of Australasia. But you're right. I came back right in time. I, so we are being inundated with news about this Wuhan virus, some of it particularly graphic and terrible. But it looks like there are potentially tens of thousands of people inside China who have come down with this virus and that plenty of people who were either in Wuhan or in one other city in China got on planes and went off to the United States, Canada, Australia, and various other countries and brought it with them. I shouldn't sit so close to you. No, you probably shouldn't. (laughs) I've been trying to push you away for ages. But I think the real question in my mind is, how can we understand this better? Is the response to this completely hysterical? You know, anytime there's a new disease, Ebola, particularly evocative, but SARS, MERS, all of these acronyms, and now this, this new virus coming out of Wuhan, it's hard for us to understand what it's all about. And so everybody reverts to the thing that we all know best and most easily, which is fear. Yes. Well, but there's good reason to be afraid. In the 20th century, there were three major influenza pandemics that in one-third of the U.S. population in 1918 was infected. Life expectancy in our country was reduced by 13 years by that pandemic in 1918. It's followed by pandemics in 1957 and 1968 that killed tens of thousands of Americans and millions of people across the world. And then you had the SARS outbreak in 2002, How many people died in the SARS outbreak? There were 8,000 people infected and 774 killed, but that was, you know, that was contained. You had MERS as well. These are, they're what these There was avian flu, don't forget that one. Exactly. And so all of these things remind us is that it's entirely possible that at some point, it hasn't happened yet, but that there's some new strain of a virus that we don't have a cure for, that we don't have a, we don't have a vaccine for, that we don't have a treatment for, could spread like wildfire, come into the United States and have really fast human-to-human transmission and kill a lot of people because it's happened before. I want to make a case to you that one of the things that it will make it most easy for that to happen in the modern era, when we have genome sequencing, when we have instantaneous communication, when we know, you know when and where disease carriers are, one of the things that is going to make that happen is the continued existence of totalitarian regimes Amen. that fail to share information, that lie first and foremost to their own people, but then to the rest of the world, the dribble out information in the way that the Chinese government has done that are 
despicable in their willingness to see not only their own people die, but their own people transmit diseases to others that could cause the kind of pandemic you're talking about. No, I think I think the existence of communist China is a public health emergency. I mean, <laughs> seriously, it really is. I mean, so, you know, the, the way these viruses make the jump from animals to humans is in what they, they call these wet markets. Uh, they're, they're, uh, there's, and I have, to, I have to tell you, I've been to one of these. Uh, I, I've, I've been to, I was, I was in Guangzhou, uh, which is where SARS started, actually, uh-huh. many years ago. This was like in the 1990s. Folks, we finally have the common denominator. Exactly. Patient, Patient zero. zero. <laughs> Get away Excuse from me. me. I've got this terrible cough, Daddy. <laughs> Which, Go on. Um, but I mean, I've, I've been—I've walked through one of these markets, and I mean, and there's all, there's cages filled with puppies, there's cages filled with wild animals, and fish, and rats, and all sorts of things. These but, are these are breeding grounds right. for viruses, and you know, China seems to be ground zero for the SARS came out of China, avian flu. These, Hong these, Kong came out of Hong Kong, I think, yeah. But this is, this is but you know, right. the, the Guangzhou market is literally, you can walk from, you go to Macau and you walk across the Chinese border and there it is, you walk right into it. So this is very close to Hong Kong. And so you have a combination of this sort of this breeding ground of viruses with a totalitarian regime where nobody's going to want- That nobody, is indifferent to human is, life. That is indifferent to human life. But also that there's no incentive for anybody to, you know, say, hey, we got a problem here. You know, let's tell the world. Let's have transparency. Transparency and communism don't go together. Right. So we have an untransparent, unaccountable regime ruling over a a country that is where a lot of these viruses are being formed and making the jump from animals to humans. Yeah, no, I mean, and and this is none of this is a slam uh, on the Chinese people or their cultural preferences. This is really or their eating preferences, although, yes, no, thank you to the wet market. Well, it's not coming from Taiwan. Well, that's true. At the same time, it it is really that circumstance that exacerbates it. It is the fact that we see these you know, to put it very simply, bad people who are unwilling to to share information. I also do think that there remains an awful lot of ignorance about the nature of disease and the nature of illness, even in the United States where people have access to lots and lots of information. I mean, when any of us, you know, when when something's wrong and you pick up Google and ask it a question, you can pretty much find any answer. And I think that also exacerbates the spread of fear that makes these developments so dangerous. And of course, you know, when we see it and it hits the the stock market, part of that is sure, you know, travel stocks, people aren't going to travel to China, supply chain concerns about Chinese manufacturing. But part of it is just ignorance and fear as well. So you're absolutely right, Danny. I mean, the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003, like you said, it killed 774 people. I mean, the flu kills more people than that every year. But it had a major impact. The Asia-Pacific region, it cost $40 billion to the economies of the Asia-Pacific. Airline industry was hit very, very hard. Lots of people lost their jobs. Air travel to Asia dropped 45% the year after the outbreak. And that was by a limited outbreak of a, of a small virus that was actually fairly well contained. If you can imagine the global economic impact of a mass pandemic virus of some kind that we don't have the ability to control and we don't have the ability to create a fast you know, vaccine to treat, the economic dislocation could be enormous, not to mention the cost of the loss of life. 
Right. So the question here for us really is, uh, you know, is the United States positioning itself preemptively as well to learn the lessons that we learn from these kind of outbreaks? And, you know, we can say 800 people in terms of the numbers that the way that compares to the flu is it's, it's insignificant when you compare it to deaths from flu, for example, every single year. But are we learning those lessons? Uh, are we learning the, the service lessons? Are we learning the technological lessons? And I mean, I think there are real improvements, but you do want to get the sense that we're ready. Remember the anthrax attack? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we didn't have anything uh, that was prepared in order to help deal with the anthrax attack. I can tell you in years past, we've run out of flu shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm sure that you've been told by doctors, yes. right? Oh, I'm sorry, we're out. I was at the doctor last week, and he said, oh, this is great new vaccine that you need to take because you're old for shingles, And uh, but I don't have it. And you're on my waiting list, but you're around number 200. So, you know, these kinds of things, I worry that that in the case of a real medical national emergency, global emergency, these kinds of problems would really beset us. And also the other thing that's fascinating with flu is that they're basically guessing every year which strain of the flu it's going to be. So they can miscalculate and immunize you against a flu that's not going around. And then the other thing I don't think people realize is that we're still using 1950s technology to create these vaccines. Most vaccines are still produced by using a chicken egg that's infected with the influenza <laughs> virus and then Sorry, they use that to laugh. But it's true. It just, it just I mean, sounds like something you did in fifth grade science. I know. But I mean, you know, we've got this high tech, all the, you know, we've got immunotherapy for cancer and we've got all these things like that. We're literally using chicken eggs the same way they did it in the 1950s to produce vaccines. And so if you get some, you know, new pandemic and new disease, how quickly can we get a vaccine online. You have to get a sample of the virus. You have to take it and test it for safety, get it into enough chicken eggs to incubate and produce to inoculate the population. We don't know yet how virulent this Wuhan virus is. We don't know yet how quickly it's spreading from person to person and how deadly it is. But if something that is incredibly contagious and incredibly deadly comes along, are we ready as a country to deal with that? So that's why we have our guest on, to find out the answer to that question. So Scott Gottlieb is joining us. He is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he is a repeat offender because uh, he used to be a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute before he went into the Trump administration as the uh, commissioner of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. He had been previously at the FDA uh, during the Bush administration. He has a degree in medicine from Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He He's a prolific writer, prolific speaker. And the thing I like... a physician and a, and a public intellectual. He really is. And the thing I like best about Scott is that he really is able to discuss these things in a way that is accessible to, you know, medical ignoramuses like you and, and me. Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was actually speaking for you, but there it is. You always are. Have a listen. I think you'll all enjoy this. So Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start like really simple because people don't know a lot about this. What is a coronavirus? Coronavirus is a virus that typically circulates in animals. There are seven strains that are known to infect humans and typically it will cause a mild respiratory illness. When we think of a really bad cold, that might be caused by a coronavirus. There are two strains of coronavirus that we know of, uh, MERS and SARS, mm-hmm. um, that are more severe. SARS um, circulated in 2003, and there was an outbreak in Toronto as well. 
MERS is another more severe form of coronavirus that circulates in the Middle East, still infects people from time to time. Typically, the origin is from animals to humans. This is another strain of coronavirus, so this would be an eighth known strain of uh, coronavirus to circulate in humans. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask a question, uh, staying in this really basic vein. Um, you know, you talked about SARS. You, you've talked about the coronavirus. We have been getting sort of wall-to-wall coverage of this. And the you know, stock market dropped you know, hundreds of points uh, on news that the Chinese were reporting that the, its spread was more uh, widespread than estimated. So I went and looked at the CDC, the Center for Disease Control's numbers on how many people die just of the flu, of these run-of-the-mill known strains of flu that we talk about that people get every year. And the numbers make SARS and MERS look like you know nothing. We're talking about, you know, in one year, 2017, 2018, 61,000 people died in the United States from the flu. 800 people died in the SARS epidemic. Why the hysteria? What is the excitement? Well, flu is a deadly virus as well, and flu causes a lot of hospitalizations every year in a really bad flu season. We'll see hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations from flu and thousands of deaths from the flu. Um, In a very bad flu season, you might see upwards of 40 million people being infected with the flu. There's no question flu is dangerous, but for flu, we have drugs that can be effective to help treat people who are uh, very sick. We have vaccines that are available. Oftentimes people will get the flu because they don't get vaccinated, but we do have vaccines that are available. So we have ways to mitigate the spread of the flu if there is an unusually bad flu season. We're unprotected from this coronavirus. And because it's a novel coronavirus, it may be the case that most people don't have any uh, immunity to it, that they don't have immunity to the common features of this particular virus. And so for people who are old or sick or young, they might get very severe illness as a result of this coronavirus. And we don't understand yet what the denominator is. We know the numerator. We know how many people in China are becoming seriously ill and how many people are dying. But we don't. what we don't know is how many people are actually infected. And it could be the case, and I think it's probably the case, that there's tens of thousands of infections in China, and most of them have gone unreported. And there might even be more deaths than what's been reported. But even if you look at the picture in China right now where this coronavirus has now reached an epidemic proportion, you assume that there might be 100,000 people who've been infected. And you look at the numbers that China's reporting where there are 3,000 people who've been diagnosed with it at this point. Um, You figure those are the more severe cases. They said 500 in critical condition, 80 have died. I assume those numbers are a little bit low because they weren't doing good screening early on in the course of this. There's probably people who died as a result of this infection who who went unreported. And you look at those numbers relative to the potential for 100,000 infections, which I think would probably be at the high end of what might be possible. And again, there's still a lot we don't know. You're looking at something that's probably slightly more virulent, meaning slightly more severe than the flu, and probably almost as contagious, if not just as contagious. And so this can be a very bad flu that we have no protections for. What is the difference between coronavirus and flu? Influenza. They're just different viruses. Different viruses, different um, passed differently, connected Um, different origin from different Mm -hmm. animals. They infect different parts. They they bind to different proteins in the body. They infect different parts of the body. This virus, and we we still don't understand this virus well, but based on some of the early studies, it appears to infect the lower airways. Most coronaviruses are upper respiratory infections. This appears to be a lower respiratory infection. That's why you're potentially seeing some people get a very severe pneumonia from it. What that also means is that 
when you test people for it, typically you would swab the nasopharynx, you might not get enough virus to actually have a positive test. And so in some of the cases, they've had to go back and, and test people twice and get samples later in the course of the illness when you have more virus, you have greater viremia. So then you have enough virus in your upper airway that it's actually showing a positive result. So if that's the case, we might be even missing some of these cases. It's a, it's a complicated picture because it we don't understand the virus very well, and it's not behaving like a normal coronavirus based on what we know right now. I want to understand more uh, about the virus itself because this is fascinating, and I want to know, uh, understand why it's not behaving like a normal coronavirus. But the people who are going to die from this, for the most part, are the people who die from the flu, the elderly, the infirm, the very young, people who are immunocompromised in some way, people who are more vulnerable. This isn't Ebola. Well, that's always the case with viruses like this, even with the flu. People who are more susceptible to it and, and, and develop more severe infection are often people who are immunocompromised in some fashion or don't have other resistance. And so the very old, the very young, people who have other diseases. But, you know, you, you start to see circumstances with, with a very novel virus where it can behave in ways that we don't fully understand. So, for example, with H1N1, the swine flu, when it first circulated for the first time a number of years ago, a lot of pregnant women became very ill, and I think there were about 100 deaths among pregnant women, and that, that's a very high number. Now, again, when you're pregnant, you don't have a normal immune system. Your immune system is altered in certain ways, and so you might be more susceptible. But for some reason, that virus had a certain impact that we don't fully understand on that population. And so you, you might see that with a novel virus with certain populations that wouldn't normally, shouldn't normally be adversely affected in a way that's disproportionate to the, to other people are, and we just don't understand why. What is pandemic flu, and does this have the potential of becoming a pandemic? Well, this certainly has the potential of becoming a pandemic. Pandemic simply means that it's epidemic in multiple regions of the world. Mm -hmm. So this is now epidemic in China. Other parts of the world have outbreaks. How you define an outbreak with respect to a uh, circulating virus can be as few as four cases. If it's a virus that shouldn't otherwise be circulating, an outbreak can just simply be a handful of cases. And so you, you can argue we've had outbreaks of this. What we haven't seen yet outside of China, however, is sustained human-to-human -human spread. So the cases that have arisen so far that we know about outside of China are all cases that were imported into those countries, including the United States, from China. We haven't seen the virus propagate inside other countries. I think we can assume there probably is some spread outside of China in other countries. We're just not detecting it. That doesn't mean that those limited outbreaks are going to become very large outbreaks, and it certainly doesn't mean that those outbreaks are going to become epidemics. Epidemics would mean you have sort of uncontrolled spread within another country. But this has the potential for that. It does seem to be highly contagious. And the question is, has it reached that sort of sweet spot between being contagious enough to spread efficiently but virulent enough, severe enough to actually cause pretty adverse outcomes. And it seems to be that it could be in that continuum, if you will, between being able to be spread efficiently and being pretty severe that it could actually cause bad outcomes if you spread this across a large enough population. Typically, viruses that cause really severe symptoms don't spread very efficiently because they make their hosts too sick to spread it. 
Interesting. So SARS had a pretty high fatality rate. What kind of fatality rate are we seeing with this uh, with this Wuhan coronavirus? We don't know right now. The estimates on, on the fatality rate are being made off of the cases that have been confirmed in China right now. So they've confirmed almost 3,000 cases. They've had 80 deaths within those 3,000 cases. About 500 people are hospitalized. These numbers are, are changing daily. And we can't necessarily trust them. And we can't necessarily trust them. I think the challenge here is that, first of all, there's probably been... A, underreporting of both infections as well as people who probably died from this infection. And there's certainly underreporting of the number of people who have this infection. I don't surmise that China is closing major cities and putting more than 50 million people under the equivalent of some kind of quarantine and shutting down trade and commerce because they have 2,000 cases, 3,000 cases in Wuhan. I think that this is now epidemic across China and there's probably tens of thousands of cases. In that scenario, you'd probably assume that the fatality rate is lower than what's being reported right now because it's not 80 cases out of 3,000. It might be 200 cases out of 50,000 or out of 100,000. That's still a pretty significant uh, illness. If this is causing, you know, 0.1% or even 0.5% fatality rate, that's pretty significant. So let's talk a little bit about the virus itself. And, you know, we, we tend to talk about national security and foreign policy, but there actually is a nexus here. So a coronavirus is a virus that jumps from animals to people. Is that right, Scott? Coronavirus typically circulates in animals. There's seven and now eight known strains that have made the jump from animals to people. So the fact that these start in China, these open air markets that they have, dietary habits, a lot of, there were a couple of photographs circulating of this woman eating a bat last week that were really rather off-putting, if I may say, (laughs) made me rethink my affinity for Chinese food. But explain how that's sort of on uh, on the front lines of disease and why we're seeing these new viruses coming out of this sort of an environment. Yeah, well, these large markets in China, what, what they call wet markets, yeah. um, which sort of is makes it all the more yeah, appetizing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is the way that the the phrase describes it. I, you know, there are these large markets where they sell a lot of different um, slaughtered animals, a lot of different species, and they become sort of mixing grounds for the ability to pass viruses not just between animals but from animals to humans. And they they've long been known to be a risk factor in the propagation of viruses, the flu, different strains of influenza, and different strains of coronavirus. The reason is, simply put, when you have a lot of animals mixing with humans, the animals, mammals typically, will form sort of an intermediate host. And so you might see, for example, uh, some strain of a virus that originates in birds make its way into a mammal, either a bat or maybe a pig, and then undergo some mutation, some adaptation that makes it more amenable to then propagating into a human because it's had that sort of intermediate stage in another mammal that's close enough to a human that the adaptation that it undergoes in that species makes it easier to jump into a person. I think what um, is concerning here is the speed at which this virus appears based on what we know to have made the jump from animal to human. Now that's getting rethought right now because it was originally thought that this virus originated in late December out of the Wuhan market. And now, now we've got new dates. Right. There's some reporting that there were some some cases even earlier than that. So it might not have originated in the market at all. The market may have become something that created some secondary spread, but it might have originated somewhere else. But if you believe the original reporting, the speed at which it made the jump from animals to humans is concerning, and the speed at which it's now adapted itself to be an efficient spreader among humans. So all of this is exacerbated by the kind of, 
I think we can now call China pretty totalitarian, certainly authoritarian regime that exists in China, right? We don't believe the information. There isn't transparency. There isn't a clear understanding about origination. There isn't a clear understanding about how many people are infected, how many people are died, have died, where they all are. In an ideal world, if the Chinese still had the same dietary habits, but they were a, a free and open democratic society, would we be better equipped to fight this? Well, I'm a little bit... Um, it, I find it striking how much we're sort of bending over backwards to make official statements that are supportive of China's actions in, in the context of the current epidemic, because China's actions may have been good by China standards, but they're not good by public health standards or, or Western standards. The first reports of of an unusual pneumonia circulating in China came out in late December only because the Chinese were aware that this some some strain of a viral pneumonia was circulating that was getting people very sick and they had sent an advisory to their physicians and that advisory made it onto social media and so then they then they owned up to the fact that there was this cluster of pneumonia circulating they didn't start to talk about the severity of this until a viral video started to circulate on Twitter of Chinese health officials going onto airplanes and take, taking people's temperature on, on in in full in, in full, full body full regalia, station, right? right. Yeah. And it wasn't until last Monday, January twentieth or twenty first, that China reported on the fact that they had fourteen healthcare workers that had become infected, and in fact, there was human to human transmission. Now, we we long suspected that there was human to human transmission just because of the rate of diagnoses that was happening in China, but China didn't say that, and they certainly knew that there were fourteen healthcare workers. That at the very least, they were monitoring very closely because they thought they had this virus, and those positives didn't all come back on the same day. So they knew that there were healthcare workers getting infected. And when you see healthcare workers getting infected, that's very concerning because it's proof of two things. Number one is proof of human to human transmission, and typically, unless something's very contagious, you don't typically see healthcare workers get infected. And so when you start to see doctors get infected at a high rate, you start to be very concerned about the transmissibility. That's a key piece of information that they disclose very late. We found that out last week. Uh, we were well into this crisis by last week, and that would have helped, I think, the rest of the world wake up to this threat and maybe take stronger actions earlier had they known that this was spreading in that way. To build on Danny's point, I don't know if you saw the uh, HBO series Chernobyl, but it's really a fascinating series. And one of the things that was so striking about it is because of the totalitarian system, you know, the, the reactor's melting down, and the locals' officials are saying, you can't, the reactor can't melt down. It's not possible for a reactor to melt down. And they would call. They were calling the Kremlin and saying, this is small, it's contained, it's no big deal, there's a fire in the reactor, but this is not a big problem. And that went on for a significant period of time. So in a country like China, there's no. it's not a career-building move to be the local official who calls up the Politburo and says, tell President Xi that uh, we've got a really bad virus here because we've done a bad job of uh, local public health. So how do we deal with, you know, you were when you were at the FDA, you have to deal with a lot of countries around the world and, and coordinate with them. How do you deal with a country like China? So the samples that we now have of the virus that we're using to help validate diagnostic tests and maybe help to develop uh, therapeutics, all those samples have come from people who've been infected with the virus and happened to travel outside of China. China could have been sharing, they could have been growing and sharing viral samples much earlier. All they did was put up partial sequences. Now, by China standards, that was really new. The fact that they were actually sharing the sequence 
fairly early in the setting of this this epidemic was a new thing. And so I think the world, you know, greatly appreciated the fact that China was willing to engage in this information sharing. But if this had if this outbreak had occurred in England or Australia or the United States, I think you would have far more information available far early in the course of the outbreak um, and far more sharing of the tools that could help in the development of diagnostics and therapeutics. You had a great piece um, that was, uh, I think, up on CNBC today, and, and another one, another one in the Washington Post last week, explaining some of these issues. Because while uh, I think we rightly are reserving a lot of our criticism for the way that the communist government in China has handled things, at the same time, this this point of care question here is you know, relevant. I mean, Americans now are used to the fact that you can walk into your urgent care in the strip mall and, you know, someone will stick a swab down your throat and tell you if you have strep or tell you if you have the flu. But this this technology isn't really there for some of these viruses. We haven't advanced on, on a lot of these questions. What do you blame for that? Is it a, a regulatory problem? Is it a liability problem? Is it an innovation problem? Is it a medical problem? Where could we be better? Where's the problem? Well, there there really wasn't a strong clinical need for a point-of-care diagnostic to test for coronavirus prior to this coronavirus, because typically coronaviruses don't cause severe illness, and the ones that do, SARS and MERS, don't circulate. And so you really didn't need a point-of-care diagnostic. I think now in the setting of the threat of uh, global spread of this virus and the potential for large outbreaks, a point-of-care diagnostic is, is exactly what we need. We need to be able to test for not just mild potential cases, but also asymptomatic cases. And we can't just rely on uh, travel history alone. If if we are facing the prospect of outbreaks, we're going to need to test much more broadly in order to contain the spread of this infection. I don't know that there's necessarily a breakdown. I think that there's never been really a need for a rapid point-of-care diagnostic for coronavirus, now there is. The question is, how quickly can we come up with one? The technology is there. It's certainly there to be able to do it. Depending on what kind of samples you can get from from a person infected with this virus, whether or not a, flu, a swab is going to give you sufficient sample in order to run a test, the technology for developing antibody-based tests or what we call PCR-based tests at the point-of-care, the test for the test for elements of the virus's uh, genome. That technology exists. We can develop that fairly rapidly. We might not be able to validate it to the point where regulators would feel comfortable deploying it on the front lines of healthcare and and giving what we call a CLIA waiver, meaning it can be performed outside of a, a reference lab. But there are also new authorities that Congress has passed that make it easier for regulators in the Food and Drug Administration in particular, where I worked, to provide those kinds of waivers and, and deploy, forward deploy these tests in the setting of a public health emergency. Something called an emergency use authorization can allow the FDA to deploy this more rapidly uh, without going through all of the normal validation that we would go through. And then, you know, in those settings you where you have a high degree of suspicion or you have a positive sample, you send off a sample also to one of the reference labs where you can run the more definitive test. But this allows you to do broader screening, which is what we're going to need to be doing. So, I mean, we had in the 20th century three influenza pandemics in, uh, in 1918, 1957, 1968. And it's likely that at some point we'll have another uh, pandemic. Um, in 2005, when I was at the White House, I wrote a speech for President Bush laying out our strategy to prepare for an influenza pandemic. And so here we are 15 years later, 
And I'd like to ask you, this, I mean, there are three pillars to it. I want to ask you about each of them and see where we are 15 years later in terms of the preparedness for it. So the first pillar was detect outbreaks before they spread across the world, improve our detection capabilities. What are, how are our detection capabilities right now? Our detection capabilities are much better than where, where they were when we set out to uh, create more robust capacity. And I was in the government, too, at the time, working at the Food and Drug Administration, when elements of that plan were implemented. You know, but remember, a lot of what we did over that time period was geared towards influenza. And so some of the things that we, some of the capabilities we developed were specific to influenza and aren't necessarily going to be as relevant here. Now, we also created general capacity at the time, and that capacity, I think, is going to be very helpful here. But a lot of the kinds of diagnostic platforms that we created and the kind of off-the-shelf vaccines that we created that, that could be used in the setting of a novel influenza strain are going to be specific to influenza strains. Okay. Um, the second part of the strategy was stockpiling vaccines and antiviral drugs and also speeding the development of new vaccine technology. One of the things I found fascinating back then was that we were still, for most va influenza vaccines, using 1950s technology, but actually infecting chicken eggs and like using that to create virus. And, and the when you, the, one of the things you cited in that speech, I mean, President Bush cited in that speech that you wrote, was, <laughs> was, was that because of litigation, that there was, at least at that point, only... Yeah. Only one vaccine manufacturer left in the United States. Is that still true? There's more vaccine manufacturers and there's more capacity. And so part of part of the plan was to build out capacity, both for the egg-based production, which we still largely rely on for the production of That's influenza amazing. vaccines, but also technology to uh, manufacture recombinant vaccines, uh, influenza vaccines, which is technology that we're now using in a greater proportion than we were back when um, when we set out to do this. But I mean, that's, that's amazing to me that we're still using chickens and eggs, the 50s, 1950s, because we, back then the big thing was cell culture technology to try and advance the speed of this. How quickly, if there was a new virus that came, you know, because the problem is with, with influenza, as you point out, we know most of the strains or versions of the strains, and so you can prepare vaccines for it. If something like new comes out, how quickly can we turn around, get a, get a sample of the new virus, and develop right. a vaccine? Well, for the it? the concern with influenza always was that you'd have a strain of bird flu uh, circulate that would develop the ability to infect humans, but it would be toxic to the chicken eggs, and so you wouldn't be able to manufacture a vaccine of a very virulent bird flu strain in chicken eggs. And that's why you wanted the recombinant technology also to guard against that that possibility. In this case, the coronavirus, a coronavirus vaccine would be manufactured differently. It wouldn't be manufactured in the same way you'd manufacture influenza. We have the capacity to do it. I think the realistically developing a vaccine Putting it in human studies to look for st safety is probably a three to six month endeavor. And in trying to get into pivotal studies to actually look for safety and efficacy, you're talking at least a year, probably a couple of years. Is that underway right now for this coronavirus? There's multiple parties right now looking at trying to develop a vaccine for this particular strain of virus. I think in the near term and maybe even in the long run, it's going to be more important to get diagnostics than a vaccine. You know, you, depending on what we learn about this virus, if, if this virus is something that becomes endemic, meaning it comes back every season, it might be something that we want to develop a vaccine strategy to. But it's likely to be the case that this virus will burn itself out, that enough of the population will eventually become infected with this virus, that it's not something that we would necessarily vaccinate for unless it undergoes some kind of adaptation and mutation where it can come back. But putting aside this virus, our general capability for dealing with pandemic outbreaks of some kind, do we have the, do we have a capacity to quickly produce 
we don't have the capacity to quickly respond with a therapeutic. I mean, that's that's the challenge, certainly with a vaccine. The, the time to develop a vaccine, you're talking about a year to years. What we do have the capacity to do in the near term is develop capacity to diagnose and quarantine and isolate norm, regular public health tools, which can be highly effective. We do have the capacity in the near term to screen off-the-shelf drugs and see if they're going to have activity uh, against this virus. And then the final leg of the strategy was having emergency plans in all 50 states and every local community to, to respond quickly to pandemic, to have pandemic preparedness. What is our pandemic preparedness across the United States right now? I think the, the public health tools and, and the public health infrastructure is far better today than it was 20 years ago when, when I think the government 15 years ago when the government first set out to build a better capacity. For example, as I mentioned, you know, our capacity to detect unusual um, spikes in illness is very good. If there are outbreaks of any size of this coronavirus that are causing unusual clusters of pneumonia or viral illness, we're going to detect that. Even in the setting of a, a flu season, we're going to be able to pick that up much more effectively today than we would have been 10 or 15 years ago. So stock market posted its worst performance in months in response to news uh, from, from Beijing. Appropriate reaction is this hysteria is the world at risk? Should we all be lighting our hair on fire and running around? Or or do you think the reaction has been appropriate? Well, I, I, I can't gauge the market's reaction. I think that this certainly has the potential to have epidemic spread outside of China. I, I don't think that that's inevitable. I think that there's certainly the capability and, and we still have a window of opportunity. China might have missed its window of opportunity to prevent a very widespread outbreak in China, but we have the window of opportunity to present, prevent outbreaks in in other countries, uh, large outbreaks, and certainly prevent uh, epidemic spread. But it's going to require us to uh, you know, deploy uh, a level of oversight and deploy certain tools that aren't that accessible right now, including you know, diagnostics that can be used to do much greater surveillance. So we're going to have to, CDC is talking about making that test that it's currently running widely available to public health agencies. They probably have to think about how to make that available also to hospitals so that you can run more tests in hospitals and not have to send off samples. If we take steps like that and develop the capacity to do wider screening, I think we have the ability to prevent large outbreaks and certainly prevent epidemic spread. Also, you know, this is occurring late in the winter. We're going to be bumping up against the spring and summer. The epidemiology of of these kinds of epidemics changes in the summer months because people aren't in close quarters or outside. The ability to transfer viral particles through respiratory droplets is different in the summertime than in, in the winter where you have different kind of air. So if we're able to prevent outbreaks from occurring or large outbreaks from occurring through March, April, once we get into you know May, June, we might be out of the woods, at least for this season. But it's possible that this coronavirus is something that's going to come back again in the fall. And that's what happened with the swine flu. The swine flu started to occur very late in the winter. We ran into the summer, it dissipated, and then it came back in the fall. But by then, we were able to develop a vaccine and put it in the seasonal flu vaccine. Final question. Putting this virus aside, how would you rate our preparedness to handle a really serious mass pandemic virus uh, on a scale of, you know, A, A plus to, uh, to F? Well, I, I don't think we're ever going to be fully prepared to, to handle a really um, significant uh, pandemic, something that has true, true pandemic spread where it's highly contagious, but also highly virulent, meaning it causes very severe disease and you have a high fatality rate. I think in those situations, we're going to be dependent upon developing a vaccine very quickly. And those kinds of situations will quickly overwhelm healthcare systems. 
that's worrying place to end, but thank you, Scott. (laughs) We know how busy you've been over the last weeks answering questions about this, so we're really grateful. Thank you. So first of all, let me just say that I'm glad that Scott Gottlieb was on the job uh, dealing with these issues at the FDA, someone so knowledgeable on on this stuff. I am worried about our preparedness as a country for this. Going up 50,000 feet from the Wuhan issue to the broader issue of our preparedness for a pandemic, I don't know that we're ready. And something like this, you're literally talking existential threat if the wrong kind of virus gets out. And it's a combination of medical challenge combined with the challenge of the lack of freedom in the world that could literally wipe out millions of people one day. Well, I mean, that's what the Spanish flu does. You'd like to think that we were advanced enough, that we were, um, and and that we were proactive enough, that we were ready for this. Listening to Scott, it it does. It. I mean, I am reassured. You know, when you talked about that speech that President Bush gave in 2005, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about 15 years later. I'm reassured by the advances that he described. I mean, we did actually. We've moved forward in some cases. What still worries me is that, first of all, there's not a lot of good national leadership on this. Have you noticed? Like, nobody's out there saying, you know, you know, don't light your hair on fire. Everything's going to be fine. You know, we're really on top of it. I do wish we had some, some, some leadership on this. And I guess the CDC does its best. But, you know, all this does is highlight how much of a risk there is to our population from not just illnesses, but from the weaponization of these illnesses as well. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but the one thing that I think we're really not ready for is, you know, yeah, this is sort of an accidental generation of a of a, a mutation of a virus that has adapted very quickly and that jumps from person to person to person with great facility. But what about bad people who are hoping to use this kind of thing to spread disease? Are we ready for that? I, I certainly haven't gotten the impression from, you know, the hysteria at the New York Stock Exchange that we are. No. You know, and I want to do an episode about this at some point. But a few years ago, when the Ebola outbreak came out, I wrote a Washington Post column um, in which I speculated, what if uh, al-Qaeda were to weaponize Ebola, that you send a terrorist to Africa during an Ebola outbreak and intentionally get yourself infected and then come here to the United States and just spread it far and wide. And people just mock the heck out of me for saying that. Oh, you know, they're crazy, Nothing happens until it happens. No, exactly. And then I just read this book by Amaryllis Fox, this former CIA operative, uh, who wrote a book that didn't go through pre-publication review, unlike John Bolton's book. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but I digress. But I digress. And uh, and one of the things, as I was listening along, she was talking about intelligence that they had about al-Qaeda, looking at operationalizing Ebola, discussing operationalizing Ebola. Yeah, no, so frankly, you're I'm, right. I'm, shocked that, I'm shocked that we have not seen more efforts at biological weapons attacks by these kinds of groups. And maybe, you know, maybe we have, and, and, and it's classified... But it doesn't fill you with confidence to to see how we've responded to this coronavirus, to the Wuhan virus, and think that if somebody was choosing to use this in a different way for terrorist purposes, uh, that we would be really, really well equipped to get on top of it and not have a national panic. I think you raised the salient issue, which was 
the Chinese response. Because when I wrote that speech for President Bush in 2005, the first line of defense is early detection for right. these things. And I mean, he used the analogy of a pandemic that a pandemic is like, a lot like a forest fire, that if you catch it early, you can extinguish it, limit the damage. But once it goes allowed to be smolder undetected, uh, it becomes a raging forest fire and you can't control it. You just have to let it burn out right. at some point. And that's where we are with this. If we can't trust China to give us the information that we need to con to work together internationally to contain the virus and to deal with it, then you could have a forest fire very quickly. Um, and you know these things spread. All it takes is a couple of people to go in a bunch of planes in different directions, and all of a sudden it's everywhere. Well, on that cheerful note, have <laughs> <laughs> you all have enjoyed listening to the show? Absolutely, it's great to have you back in person, Danny. Thank you. It's very it's great to be back here in person. And if you guys have any questions for us, or even for Scott, or suggestions for how we can do things better, or other shows we should have, don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. It's what is it, Alexa? It's Yes, it's the, it's the it's the trips off the lifts. What the hell at AEI.org. Email us. We'd love to hear from you. And if you hear Danny coughing, let me know. I'll call in next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Yeah.